a precious trait in human relationships is trustworthiness. Who are the people in your life that you know you can count on? People whose word you can trust, people that you can count on. A best friend, a parent, a spouse. Consider the preciousness of trustworthiness. Consider the, the time and the effort that it takes to establish trustworthiness and the time and the effort that it requires to reestablish trustworthiness once it's been broken. One of the character traits that I treasure about my wife, Laura, is her trustworthiness. I can count on Laura, can rely on her. She's true to her word. And I remember the moments I knew that she would be the woman that I was going to marry. It was at Bertrand Library at Bucknell University in 2002, exactly 20 years ago this past April. I was stressed out, rifling through all these articles that I needed to read and process in order to write this report and present it before my class, scrambling as it was in the last moments. She saw the stress in my eyes and she just says to me, Dane, why don't you let me help you? Give me the list of articles. I'll go get them on what was called, this is like ancient times, microfilm or microfish. I'll print them off. You do the ones that you have already. Read them and process. I'll help you. Now, the library is not necessarily the place where you think love would be kindled. But in my case, it was. She was trustworthy. And I thought to myself, in that moment, this is the kind of woman that I want to marry. Someone who is reliable. Someone who is kind. Someone who is helpful. My wife is trustworthy. Now, if we as human beings, imperfect as we are, know a measure of trustworthiness, how much more the trustworthiness of a perfect God who makes no mistakes, who's always there for us, though it may not make sense to us? Do you believe that God is trustworthy? In your heart of hearts, do you believe that you can count on the Lord, that you can take him at his word? That is a huge question in the Christian life. Do I believe that God is trustworthy? It is that question that I want us to explore and Lord willing, want you to convince you that the answer is yes to that. God is trustworthy. You can take him at his word. So let's continue in our series in the book of Acts. We are now in Acts chapter 25, let's turn there together. It's on page 934 in the Bibles we've provided on your chairs. If you're here today and you don't own a copy of the scripture, we'd love to give you a Bible. There are Bibles in the entryway, black hardcover Bibles. Please feel free to take one. If you know a friend that could need a Bible, please grab one for your friend. Acts 25, I'll read the whole chapter. Luke's the author here. He writes, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept 
at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute about him and about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes, the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Now, the aim of this sermon is to encourage us to believe that God is trustworthy, to convince us that God can be taken at his word, that what he says will come to pass. That is the, the aim, to showcase the trustworthiness of the Lord. This passage sets in motion the fulfillment of two promises that God makes to Paul. 
We see these two promises made earlier in the book of Acts. Acts 23, verse 11, Jesus comes and encourages Paul right after a violent and hostile trial before the Jews. Knowing how Paul is downtrodden, the Lord Jesus shows up to him one night, stood by him and said, take courage, Paul, for as you have testified about me here in Jerusalem, so shall you testify about me in Rome. So what's Jesus saying to Paul? Paul, your life is not going to expire here in Jerusalem. You, in fact, are going to be ushered by me orchestrating circumstances to go and testify, to preach the gospel in Rome. That's a promise. Here in this passage, we see how Paul gets his ticket to Rome. A second promise comes at Paul's conversion and his ministry calling in Acts chapter 9. Acts 9, 15, the Lord Jesus says to a man named Ananias who was attending Paul right after his conversion, he's blinded. Ananias is the one who prays that Paul might see again. And here's what the Lord Jesus speaks over Paul. He is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So there's a promise that Paul is going to be a spokesman of the Lord before Gentiles and the children of Israel, but also before kings. Now thus far in Acts, we've seen Paul has testified to Jew and Gentile but here in this passage, what is Paul preparing to do? He's preparing to speak before a king. God is making promises earlier on in the book, and he's delivering on those promises now. What is the telltale way to know that God is trustworthy? Just see the promise fulfillment motif in the scripture. What God says always comes to pass. If he says it, it will happen. And here we see the beginnings of the fulfillment of two of those promises. Paul's going to get to Rome to preach, and Paul's going to have an opportunity to preach before high-profile people, a king. So we'll organize our time in Acts 25 by highlighting the beginning of the fulfillment of both of these promises. The first section is Paul's ticket to Rome, verses 1 through 12, and the second section is Paul's opportunity before the king verses 13 through 27. So first, let's explore how Paul gets his ticket punched to Rome. Verses 1 through 12, we see the hidden hand of God preparing to usher Paul to Rome where he will proclaim the gospel. Luke tells us, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now, if you're perhaps just joining us today, who is this Festus? Last week we were talking about a man named Felix, and now it's Festus. These are Roman governors who governed over the province of Judea, where Jerusalem is, and all those affairs. Felix is succeeded by a guy named Festus. Felix held Paul two years unjustly, hoping for a bribe from Paul. Felix is succeeded by Festus, the next Roman governor, and once he's installed, he goes to Jerusalem in order to win favor with the Jews there, his constituents. While in Jerusalem, the religious leaders come and continue their attack against Paul. Well, what do they say? Well, in verse 2, the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush him and kill him on the way. This plot to get Paul back to Jerusalem is one where they hope to ambush him 
If Festus, the governor, gives his thumbs up, Paul will go back to Jerusalem to be tried. And on his way back for that trial, there are some 40 people ready and willing to ambush him, attack him. The Jewish religious establishment is bent on disposing of Paul. They hate Paul. Why? Because of his proclamation of the resurrected Lord Jesus. That's why. The resurrected Lord is the issue, the core issue throughout these remaining chapters in Acts. That's what gets him on trial. His proclamation, bold proclamation of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Well, Festus shows a measure of favor to the Jews by reopening the case against Paul, but he stops short of their wishes by sending him back to Jerusalem. Festus replies in verse 4 that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, a city on the Mediterranean coast, which is the seat of the Roman governor where Festus resided. He said, let the men of authority among you come down with me, and if there's anything wrong with a man, let charges be brought against him there. So Festus says, I intend to hear his case, but I'm going to hear it in my hometown. I'm going to hear it at my judicial bench in Caesarea. And here, Festus unwittingly protects Paul. The hidden hand of God protecting Paul. Not going to send him to Jerusalem to be tried. They're going to Caesarea. The hidden hand of God sustaining Paul. He's ushering Paul to Rome. He will not die in Caesarea. He will not die in Jerusalem. He's headed to Rome. Many and serious charges are brought against Paul. The Jews could not prove them. Brothers and sisters, Paul was walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Many and serious charges levied against Paul, unfounded, false accusations. What was levied against Jesus the, hour, the hours before he hung on the cross? Well, Mark tells us, Mark 14, verses 55 and 56, Jesus is on trial before the religious establishment, the Jewish religious authorities. They were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Do you see what's happening here? Paul is walking in the footsteps of his faithful Lord, who knew what it was to be falsely accused, who knew what it was to have charges drummed up against him, but they could not prove them. Evidence is unfounded. Paul is trusting and walking in the footsteps of his Lord in the face of false accusations. And so must it be with Christians today, followers of Jesus today, who face the onslaught of false accusations, reviling and criticism that is unjust, what do you do? You keep entrusting yourself to your faithful Lord who knows what it is to be falsely accused, who in fact is there with you in the midst of the false accusation. Paul then has an opportunity to make his defense in verse 8. Paul argued, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So Paul declares his innocence. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried there on these charges before me? And here this newly installed governor, Festus, caves to political pressure, doesn't he? He wishes to do the Jews a favor. He wants to gain credit with his constituents. 
So he entertains the option of having him tried to Jerusalem. Well, Paul knows the danger of going to Jerusalem. He knows an ambush awaits him. And so what does Paul do? We see his response in verse 10. Paul said to Festus, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, and you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Paul's not trying to worm his way out of danger, is he? No, he's seeking justice. If there's any charge against me, let it be known. No one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. He exercises his right as a Roman citizen. Paul was born into Roman citizenship, a prized possession in that day. He didn't buy it. He was born into it, and he exercises it here. He appeals to Caesar. A Roman citizen had the opportunity to have a hearing before the emperor, and that's what he does, that the emperor would judge his case. Now, is Paul seeking in this moment to skirt death? Is he being squeamish and worming his way out of danger? No, he says, I'm not trying to escape death. Do you know who the emperor is here and now, as Paul testifies before Festus? Nero, one of the most ruthless savages of an emperor in Roman history. Paul's likely not going to get much favor there, but he knows his commission from the Lord Jesus, and that commission is to get to Rome to proclaim Jesus Christ. That's why he appeals to Caesar. He knows that he's going to Rome. And so he appeals to Caesar as his ticket there. Paul is under the sovereign hand of his Lord. Paul is making decisions. He's not just passive sitting back. And so that's the interplay between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Both are at work in the scriptures. Both, in fact, are intentioned in the scriptures. Sometimes those of us who believe in the sovereignty of God are passive and kind of lazy in our own decision-making. And some of us who are leaning too heavily into our own responsibility kind of minimize the role of the sovereignty of God. The scriptures present both of them in action, in tension. God is sovereign, yes, and we are responsible, yes. We have work to do. God has work to do. He does the heavy lifting, but we have a role to play. So Paul makes a decision in that moment, probably an agonizing one. I appeal to Caesar. I want to go see Nero face to face, which was a precarious position to be before Emperor Nero, who lit Christians up on the stake. He's exercising his own judgment and wisdom, but he's ultimately trusting in the sovereignty of God. God is using Paul's decisions to accomplish his purposes. That's how God works. That's how the sovereignty, he uses our thoughtful, prayerful, and sometimes bad decisions, and he accomplishes his purposes through them. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, you see that on display here in this passage. Paul is prayerfully, thoughtfully making a decision, but at the end of the day, he's entrusting himself into the sovereign hand of his Lord. And that is a place of rest. When we fully grasp the magnitude of God's power, his sovereignty, his care, we find a place of rest. 
The great British pastor in the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, said this, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you must lay your head. When you go through a, a trial, the sovereignty, the magnificence, power of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. Do you believe that? Rest in God's power, in his providence, in his sovereignty. How does Festus respond to Paul's appeal? Verse 12, Festus, after conferring with his counsel, said, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. Now, he's likely relieved that he doesn't have to make the tough decision about Paul. He can pass the buck. Because he would be faced with a, a decision, all right, I need to lead justly. There's no charge that's legitimate, as we see as the passage unfolds. But I also want to be in the good graces of these Jews who are my constituents. Festus was staring a hard decision down. So when Paul appeals to Caesar, Festus just, just passes the buck on to Emperor Nero to take care of. Well, Paul's ticket has been punched to Rome. The Lord's promise is being fulfilled. We'll see more of it as Acts finish, finishes in the weeks ahead. A second promise that begins to be fulfilled in Acts 25, Paul's opportunity before a king. Paul's opportunity before a king. You see this in verses 12 through 27. Luke says, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Who is this Agrippa? He is the Jewish appointed king that has limited authority, partial authority. It was a means that Rome used to appease the Jews by kind of appointing a bit of a puppet king who had limited authority, but, but not a ton. He was under the auspices of, of Rome. So this is a Jewish king who would have the authority to rule over the goings-on of the temple, to appoint high priests, kind of ruling over Jewish affairs. This king arrives in Caesarea with his sister, Bernice, not his wife, his sister, his constant companion. They pay this state visit to the newly appointed governor, Festus this opportunity begins to unfold. People of high position are gathering in Caesarea in preparation for Paul to preach. And during Agrippa's visit, Festus explains Paul's situation. In verse 14 and following, as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of Romans to give anyone up before the accused met the accuser face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. Roman custom was that the accuser and the accused had to meet face to face. A wise practice leads to a measure of justice. You can just bring up some drummed up, you, you have to come together, accuser and the accused meet face to face. So they did come together, verse 17. Festus says, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat at the tribunal, his judicial bench, and ordered the men to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evil, evil as I supposed. What's Festus saying? He stood before me. They brought charges. I thought they would be egregious. They're trivial. 
They have matters to do with their own religion, not anything egregious against Roman law. That's what Festus is saying. The nature of their dispute is a religious one. Verse 19, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So notice what Festus is sort of just skirting around. This seems like trivial to me. Some dispute over a man who was dead but Paul says is now alive. And here the irony surfaces. Festus' analysis of Paul's charges, trivial, irrelevant. Oh, but Paul's proclamation about the resurrected Lord is anything but trivial and irrelevant. Festus sees this as not a matter of life and death, but the irony is the substance of Paul's preaching is a matter of life and death. The proclamation of it and a person's response to it is, in fact, the matter of most importance, of utmost importance. It is, in fact, a matter of life and death. That's the irony here. Festus, this person of power, this governor, says, ah, they're just disputing over religious things. It's not a matter of life and death. It's trivial. But from the perspective of eternity, this is the matter of most importance, which is why Paul was willing to go to his death for it. The proclamation of a man named Jesus, who Paul asserted to be alive, is a matter of life and death. And so let me ask you, do you realize what's at stake when the gospel is preached and an opportunity to respond to it is presented to you? It is the matter of most importance. Our culture views it as trivial, as marginal. But in the perspective of eternity, it is monumental. What we get to do Sunday in, Sunday out, what you get to do in your small group Bible studies or your discipleship groups or in a conversation with a friend over coffee is of the utmost importance. It is a matter of life and death. The proclamation of this man who died and who, yes, has risen to new life is a matter of life and death. So maybe you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, but you're curious, maybe skeptical. Keep pursuing God's word. Keep exploring Jesus Christ. Keep asking good questions. A local church is a place where you can ask questions, can explore, can come around other people or who can spur you on. It is a matter of life and death. It is of the utmost importance. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior who loves you and who's with you? It's a matter of life and death. Put your hope and trust in him. Festus continues his communication to King Agrippa in verse 20. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, Festus says, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them, but when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said Festus, you will hear him. Agrippa hears the news about Paul, a little bit about his background, and in curiosity says, I'd like to hear him. I'd like to hear him. And Festus says, tomorrow you have the opportunity. Agrippa, a king, ruling the matters and the affairs of the Jews, says, I'll hear him. I'll hear him. Who is orchestrating these offense? Proverbs 27, verse 1. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. 
like a river. He steers it wherever he wants it to go. That's a sovereign God. The heart of kings are in his hands. Do you believe that? You listen and watch your news feeds, and if you're like me in my own fear and sinfulness, you're overwhelmed by what's going on in the world. But in reality, the heart of every king, every political leader is in the hand of the Lord, and he steers it where he wants like a river. I'll hear Paul. God's hidden hand is on display here. Working. Working. Verse 23, Agrippa, his sister Bernice, come down with great pomp. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. It's a high-profile gathering, a who's who of the region. Consider the opportunity before Paul. We'll talk about this next week. He's going to impact the gospel before these high-profile people. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. You see how Festus is wrestling with justice? He's appealed to Caesar. I got to write a recommendation letter or an information letter to him about why this guy is coming to him. I don't even know what to write. He's not done anything wrong. He's innocent, in other words. And so it is another testimony from a Roman authority of Paul's innocence. Time in, time out. The Roman authorities declare his innocence. Does that sound familiar to you? Who else, 20 years prior, had a declaration of innocence over him by a Roman authority? The Lord Jesus himself. Pilate says to the Jews, I find no guilt in this man. He's innocent. Paul is walking the footsteps of his Lord, step by step by step. All these Roman authorities declare his innocence. He's walking in the footsteps of his Lord. Again, Jesus knows what it is to be falsely accused. He is the innocent one. It's a theme, the false accusation against the innocent one. Jesus led the way. Paul is now following in his footsteps. If you're Paul, you find comfort in that moment, knowing that you're walking the footsteps of your Lord, that he can identify with you because he experienced it himself. The innocent one suffered. And as Paul looks to his Lord who went before him, he finds hope, he finds encouragement, he finds strength. And so it is with us in this day. How do you take the next step forward in the midst of a heap of difficulty, in trial, in hardship, you remember that the Lord Jesus walked that same route and persevered. And you remember that he is with you in the midst of it, never to leave you, never to forsake you. He gives you strength in the moment to take the next step. And so does Paul. He takes the next step. I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia with 
Cecile and Soren, my two older kids. C.S. Lewis is a master storyteller. He has this ability to front load books and to front load the series with detail that come to bear later in the series or later in the book. It's, it's the, the knack and the skill of a master author and storyteller. You see it with Tolkien and J.K. Rowling, all these little details, the minutia that you're tempted to skip over early on comes to bear later on. You got to read carefully. That's why some people, I got to read that again. I got to read that because I'm skipping stuff. I'm missing stuff that has meaning later on. Friends, how much more the story of redemption written and being accomplished by the master storyteller, the master orchestrator of all. All these little details come to bear later on. The promises, the words, the declaration, God is faithful to fulfill every single one of them. I stand in awe sometimes reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids like, this guy's a genius. And so it is as we read the scripture. This Lord is a genius. He is powerful. He is wonderful. He is glorious. He's worthy of all our worship. He's unfolding a story that is true, that is good, that is right for those who align themselves with him. As you read the scripture, as we finish off the book of Acts, be in awe of the Lord who is putting this story together who is unfolding it for his good purposes, for his glory. Be in awe of this Lord. Let it endear your heart to him. He is trustworthy. What he says always comes to pass. You can take it to the bank. You can build your life upon it. Trust in the faithfulness of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a promise giver and a promise keeper. And all your promises in the scripture are yes and amen through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, it is him that we trust, that we look to, that we can come to you in confidence because of him. God, please help us to be people of your word, people who cling to it, to its promises no matter what. Lord, we understand as we look across this congregation, we look into our own lives, we see areas of need, deficiencies, anxieties, hurts. You are sufficient. You are good. Your word sustains us. Help us, God, to cling to you, to cling to your word, to believe that you are trustworthy, no matter what our circumstances suggest for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.